This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Y'all, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm just delighted that you're here. And I think you're going to be too, because we are in the middle of a series called For the Love of Funny. Funny. You know how much I personally am here for funny people, funny situations, funny TV, funny material. I just love it all. I mean, I really do. I've been a, both a fan and a student and an amateur purveyor of comedy for so long. And so talking to these really creative and smart people who have made comedy their career is just so fun for me. I wanted this series to go on for 100 years. This week's guest is a real genius, honestly, at what is probably my favorite kind of humor, or at least in the top two that sort of observational humor, just those moments in life, like however mundane, but being able to spin them into gold, right? This is a normal thing, or this is a common thing, but the way I'm going to tell it will have us like howling on the floor. I have always loved that particular brand of humor. And so, unless you think that he only lives in the normal space for his comedy, like making observations about everyday life, you can think again, because some legitimately weird stuff happens to him. (laughs) It's like the universe just keeps handing him content for him to tell funnier and funnier stories. So you guys, I'm so excited to talk today with comedian Tom Papa. You know him, of course. Tom has had an incredibly diverse career. He's Well, he's two decades in stand-up, which is rare and special. Tom has two recent specials on Netflix, one called What a Day and the other one called You're Doing Great, which is hysterical. He's a writer. He's written three books and for shows like NPR's Live From Here, 
on that show, he was the head writer. And then the, also the traveling correspondent going like from state to state, just talking to people and we, being like a magnet for weird and hilarious things. He would then go on to describe in the way that he does and kind of this straight delivery, which is just so fun. Tom's also an actor. He's been in a lot of films over the years, like Analyze This with Robert De Niro. Oh my gosh. He was in B movie, Jerry Seinfeld's movie. And then if that wasn't enough, as of this year, he's also a podcast host for the show called Breaking Bread with Tom Papa, which basically features Tom and then a host of cool and funny guests every week who just eat and drink and have funny conversations because it makes sense. And he and I talk about this. He has a reputation for becoming a really good baker. You know, of course, I didn't let him get away without talking about what drew him into the kitchen and why and what he loves about it. So we're obviously going to have that in this conversation. In addition to all kinds of fascinating things, Tom really talks about his creative process and his writing process and what he's learned over the years. And I asked him what his favorite genre is because he operates in so many silos. And I just found him so like warm and present it was just really like with me in this conversation. In fact, when we wrapped up the conversation and I stopped recording, we stayed on the phone for another 10 minutes talking about raising young adults and this generation and social media. I was just, I don't know. I was really like delighted to meet him today and to have him on the show. And a comic of this like stature is so special. And so... I think you're going to love this conversation as much as I did. So I'm so pleased to share it with you. So welcome to the show, Tom Papa. Tom, I'm so happy to meet you. I've really been looking forward to this conversation because I think you are, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I think you're a real genius comic. And I'm delighted to have you on the show. It's really nice to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. Okay. So my listeners, most of my listeners, of course, know who you are. You've had such a strong career. It's just multifaceted. You are prolific. You've got a lot of silos that you have operated in, which is special. I, I don't find that super common to be able to take what it is that you do so well and apply it to all these different genres, but you've got, I mean, TV and books and writing and movies and podcasts. It's a lot. So for my listeners who are just, they're meeting you today, or they just want to hear you talk about your life. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your coming up, how you grew up a little bit and why you're funny? Did you come up from a funny family? Did you have a funny parent or two or siblings? Or sometimes I, I notice that a lot of funny people develop it by hook or by crook in childhood, whether they wanted to or not. I'd love to hear kind of your origin story a bit. Well, it's pretty vast. But I'll start with the people around me when I was little. My mother's side was funny. There was there was some storytellers in there. There was my mother was funny. She would do impressions of everybody in our life. She was always breaking up and doing that. My father was pretty serious. He was pretty he was pretty stoic. But my mother was kind of like the kids and she would be like screwing around 
with the same kind of thing, like we might get in trouble, this guy. So it was a, kind of like a good model of, you know, looking back, I didn't think of it at the time, but not only was she funny, but it was also a little bit of we're getting away with something, you know? Yeah. Her father was very funny. He was a, like a salesman and stuff. This is, he was from Hoboken in Jersey City. We grew up in New Jersey. And uh, he was like a salesman and he could light people up pretty good. On my father's side, it was a huge family. It was like 21. I was one of 21 grandchildren. And we saw each other frequently. Everybody was in the area and we would see each other almost weekly. And there was an uncle in there. My uncle Tony was really funny. He would sit at the table and hold court. And then like some cousins were funny. And so I definitely gravitated towards those people. Uh, those uh, that always kind of inform me. And I started, you know, I started doing that like around my friends and stuff like very, very early, like really early, like, you know, kindergarten early. Totally. So, yeah. So there was definitely, there was definitely that element of it. And there's also this weird element of like, you just wanted to screw around immediately, like showing up at school. I was just, was not inclined to take any of this seriously. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, since I have to be here, might as well get some laughs. Yeah, I was much more interested in all the kids Uh than I was in anything that old person had to say. Totally. Did that continue? Like, I always love the moment that someone tells their authorities, their adults, their parents, I, for a job, I'm going to tell jokes. That's the path I'm carving out. And I'm always curious how that went. And if they were like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. They're like, please, with like one English degree, you know, like yeah. just. <laughs> yeah, do something. That was, that was kind of the deal. I knew in seventh grade was the time that I found out that being funny was a job. Ah, what were your mentors? What were you watching? That summer, I heard my first two comedy albums. Friends had Steve Martin's Let's Get Small. And then my other friend, he had Class Clown by George Carlin. Oh, gosh. And I heard both of those in that, in like a week. And that clicked that, oh, man, these are grownups. And I was already at seventh grade. I was funny. Like I, I was working it. I had no idea it could be a job. So I was like, that just clicked. And that was, that was purely it. And I think by the time I was like leaving high school, it was pretty clear that's the direction I was headed. But my parents were, I don't remember it being a discussion, but they did say that, like, get a degree, like you could do whatever you want, but you should have a degree. And I think that was smart. I think it gave me other tools to balance a checkbook and stuff. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> you know, but yeah, that's that's when it clicked. It was really realizing, oh, old people, you could do this forever. That's right. That's right. I remember listening to stand-up shows on tape, like just plugging them into my boombox. And what a world. What a world. This is a thing. I cut all my teeth on Eddie Murphy and a lot of his early stuff. And I had to watch it at other people's houses because we didn't have HBO. 
But just like you, I found it at friends' houses. Yeah, you you become like a little truffle pig. You're like, <laughs> you're sniffing <laughs> it out everywhere you go. Completely. So your brand of humor is at the top of my favorite type of comedy. Your knack for observational humor is so funny. And somehow you have weird things happen to you too. So like you've got real life offers you a lot of content and a lot of material that you can just mine the depths of. There's a lot of ways to be funny and there's a lot of different styles. And yours, you're so in the pocket of your style. Was that it for you from the jump, sort of observational humor? Or did you kind of find your way to that? It was always pretty observational, but also shrouded in family. It always came back to the people around me. You know, the people in my, when I was younger, the the family I grew up in, and then later the family that I made. And then expands a little bit out into like the community or the country. Like, But I always see it as a human endeavor. That That part to me is the most intriguing. And it's gotten more so as I've gotten older and I've gone through all these phases of that. So, and then it becomes like the the distillation or the observation about all that stuff that, that kind of comes from it. It's interesting. There's like, there's definitely, I always have this thing and I've been going through it lately. I had it even when I started where I would think of like bigger topics. I would think of, you know, bigger stuff. Like right now I'm noodling around with everybody in therapy and, and then it always ends up being a little preachy. And then I'm always like, where's the silly, where's the funny in it? And then it starts going down through the filter and then it ends up with something, you know, about me shoplifting as an adult. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it is kind of funny because I have these like larger things, but it always kind of like starts to filter down to, well, how is that? And maybe it's my way to relate. And it's, I relate through, through family and kind of the, the, the small stuff. So it's weird. It's like it is observational, but it's not in person. It's very personal observational in a way. Yeah, that's my experience of your material for sure. There's always a touch point. There's always a like a real clear entry point into the material that's usually you centered or somebody that you love or know. Where do you workshop your stuff? How do you start whittling it down? Is it just in smaller venues, kind of the comedian's way of having to get in front of a live crowd and see what lands? And what does it? Is it your poor family? Are they constantly like, uh, here we go again? Yeah, I know it isn't. Yeah, my family's uninterested in really anything I do professionally. They're not great judges. <laughs> oh no, they're mean. They're mean. Yeah. There's there's no generosity at all. I and mean, it is very yeah. it's a brutal audience. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a skip them. Yeah, I skip that. No, it's gotta be me and a bunch of strangers for sure. There's definitely as much as I'll go through phases. The working stuff out in town at the clubs is so valuable. It really is. And I know some people, they get to a point where they're playing theaters and they don't go to the clubs any longer. I think it's a mistake because you you have your audience in the theater and they pretty much go with whatever you're going to give them. And then I'll walk into the comedy store thinking about this joke, this area that I want. And it's like, all of a sudden you feel the instinct like, oh no, this isn't going to play here. And that's a great thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with playing to your audience and having them be happy, but 
to keep the standard really high, it should hit everybody and it should be potent enough that I could bring it to both of these places and that'll improve the theater show. So I really, so in that therapy section, that is, it's all over the place. It's like, I'm not really sure what I'm saying. I want to be clear, but I also want to be funny. And also all I'm doing is taking that to the comedy cellar when I'm in New York and the comedy store out here in Largo. I'm only working on that. I'm just purely working on that. And then I'll go and, up and do it at the store and then I'll come home and then I'll see what worked and kind of edit a little bit and try and go back out and, and do it again. That's like the workshop. And then it can fold into the larger act when I go out on the weekend. Right. And by the time you have folded it into the larger act, you've done it so many times and you have fine-tuned it and fine-tuned it. I love to hear the comics process because comedy is hard. It is a really narrow and specialized skill set. And it's not just clowning around. It isn't. I mean, if you do it well in the final display of it, it feels super casual. Like you're just in the pocket. You're just talking to us like you're, but that is not really how it works at all. It is billions of hours of ideas, something from the seed of an idea all the way to the big stage is a huge process and, and a lot of work. I find it easier to be dramatic than funny. Funny is hard and it's special. Because they're telling you whether you did it or not. Immediately. If you're the dramatic, is you, immediate. you don't really, there's no response that's saying you nailed it. So you could walk away thinking you nailed it. Did you? I don't know. But with comedy, you, it's, know. you know very clearly there's only one response that we're working for. And if it's they don't laugh, then you didn't do it. <laughs> oh, gosh. It really is a brutal mirror, isn't but it? But it is true. It's like you can always tell the better comics. You could see all of a sudden they're in the club again. And they're, they're there with frequency. And you can just tell, like, oh, she's working on something. She's here. She's, like, going. It's pretty great to watch. And that's the thing. There really is no other way to do it. There's no shortcut. I mean, like I said, you you could just do it on the weekends when you're doing in your theater. And I know there's some people that do that, but the ones that get really tight, in my opinion, are they're working it in different places. Who are you really enjoying right now as like colleagues or contemporaries? Who do you think is really interesting or original or somebody that you look forward to hearing do a set? Man, there's so many. I love comedians. I always love when uh, I see uh, Gary Goldman or Ryan Hamilton, Maria Bamford, who I haven't run into in a while. But every time I catch her on Instagram, it's like she's still better than everybody. <laughs> Colin Quinn, who's just a veteran, who's just the, uh, the most prolific of everybody. He just he writes so much more than everybody. And it's like a real dedication to it. Mateo Lane is really funny out of New York, and he's been getting more and more success. More people are paying attention, which is great. There's just so many. Ali Wong, when she was, she's kind of the one on my mind with, at the comedy store of like putting together her new act. Do you find when you are out in all the venues, really, that a lot of the young comics are coming to you? Well, just to be near you, first of all, but also for advice 
or for any little crumbs that you're willing to offer? Do are they is that a hungry crew, the up and comers? Yes and no. In the beginning, I think everyone's just freaked out and they don't want they just you know what I mean? And then it's like once <laughs> yeah. they get to like another level, then there'll be like casual conversations and they start to to pick it out. <laughs> I think I think when you when they first show up, they're just too too freaked. <laughs> to, I can imagine that doing stand-up is just like being on the razor's edge, especially when you're young in it, when you're new in it, you're still learning your own rhythms and learning to read the room. It's a little bit probably terrifying slash exhilarating. I'm not really sure which one. Yeah. It's like anything in life when you're around people that have are doing what you want to do in time, you just want someone to say, you know, just tell me it'll work out. <laughs> you know, totally. it's like it's like sometimes you go to the doctor, just tell me everything's all right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want any news but that. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about live from here in the NPR days, which a, what a great show and it pandemic wreaked havoc like it did on so many bases and places, but the music was amazing. I'm so sorry that I never got to see it live. It was I have so live. many regrets around that. Yeah. yeah. Your segment out in America was so fantastic. And I'd like to hear you talk about your experience with that particular so with that venue, with that arena being at NPR, which is such a specialized place too. And then on the being on the road with it, like, did you enjoy it? This is different. It was a different type of structure, obviously. And so I, I'd love to hear sort of your takeaways from, from that season of your life. It was really, it was great. I always loved Prairie Home Companion with Garrison Keeler. It was just one of those things that just, I was one of those people who, when I was driving, I, it just found me. It, that show kind of found you on the radio when you were driving to wherever, like going to gigs or whatever. And I always adored it. So then when the opportunity came up to be a part of the new version of it, I was very excited. And because I do this Come to Papa show in New York, which is pretty much Prairie Home Companion with comedians more than musicians. There's a little music to it, but I was basically just doing Prairie Home, my version of what I thought in the hands of comics, because it was Garrison's was it was comedy, but it was humorous. And I was like, what would it ha- what would it be like if it was 
pure comedians going as hard as they could. So anyway, I had been prepping for that. So it was a perfect fit when they came to me. It was like, I'm writing sketches. I know comedy. I love the show. And Chris Thiele became the host. And we met and he adored it the same way. And he had been on it. And so we had this opportunity. He was cool enough to ask me to shepherd the spoken word part of it which was just amazing. It was great. It was just to be in that space. Like the, when we went to the St. Fitzgerald, the Fitzgerald Theater, where they did most of them in St. Paul, and like to be standing at where Garrison stood and doing my monologue, which he is, you know, Lake Wobegon, and I had this out in America, you know, it's like an eighth grader showing up and asking if I can be, hang out with the seniors. But I really loved it. And I wrote a ton. And then I was like also in charge of the sketches. So we had this great team of writers and performers. And it was a little fragmented. And Chris is the heart of it. And he's pure music. He is just so, he's a genius. So it, it felt a little like you had to work really hard. We were remote and to, to try and get this thing to kind of coagulate and become one thing. And I think it did, but I think it lead. It was a little bit more towards the music side. And there were a lot of all talk NPR stations that were like, this is pretty eclectic music for our crowd. Personally, I wrote more than ever because I had my stand up. I was writing a book and then I had this and I had to do a original five to seven minute monologue every week without ever being in without ever being in front of an audience. Totally. So I had to write it quickly and then rewrite it all week long while also dealing with all the sketches. And there was not at that time, we did it for like two years, maybe three years. It, it was, there wasn't a minute where my laptop wasn't open and I was writing something. It was intense. And I would land in some place and drive to the theater with my opening act. And as the show's about to get started, I have my laptop open and I'm dealing with the sketches and and talk to the people. And then as soon as it's done, I'm back in my room, writing, re-editing all the sketches. Right after I did my show, I'm just like, it was nonstop. In a way that you liked or was it too much? I liked it, but I could tell when I didn't have to do it, what a relief it was. It was a relief. You had no margin to even have an off week. There just no. wasn't any. You just had to, pr you had to produce. I didn't watch a movie on a plane in two years. Like I literally, there was no room for anything but writing, which was great. I mean, it was, it was cool and it was, we did good work and I loved it, but there was something was going to have to give at a certain point, you know? Yeah. That's not sustainable for sure. Yeah. yeah. But we cranked out a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, you did. In short run, that's such a memorable experience and so, so special. Did you have a favorite? I mean, you did so many hilarious segments. I mean, it was just packed with hilarity and nonsense and bits. Like, did you have a moment where you just thought this is the funniest thing that's ever happened on this show? <laughs> no, I mean, it was really, for me, it was about the monologue. And it was, even like there was one step where they kind of like, parsing out the eliminating the spoken word more and more each week a, a sketch would go then two sketches would go and my monologue was the thing I really wanted to hold on to and that was the biggest takeaway was that I could write that it was 
the process of writing and rewriting, I could get something in stand-up shape in one week. And then I really, my ear was so in tune that I knew what was going to be funny. It was very few times when there were surprises. You know, when I do stand-up, you're a little more casual with it. And you, like we said earlier, you take it up to the stage and see if they like it. And if they do, and then it's like, you know, over a month or two, you've got this joke. And it was like, you have six days. And to go at it aggressively like that and really have in your head and the ear and the rhythm. And I really feel like that that process should be put towards stand-up as much as you can. Because you could grow and be deeper and more quickly. But there's something about comedy. It's like, yeah, we'll see. Let's Uh (laughs) Let's take it back. There's something about that lit fire under your feet that just pushes you probably to a new place of innovation and expediency and, and even just developing your own internal instincts for that particular crowd, that time frame. I mean, I'm sure you just had that well healed by the time the show was over. Completely. And as you say, like the one thing that the advantage was I could read it. I could stand there and read it with paper oh, in yeah. my hand. Yeah. So th- that's the disadvantage with stand up. I can't really do that. You have to try and get it in your head and then, you know, it's it's not, I can get it as fine-tuned and know exactly, but but if I go up there without notes and just am talking, doing stand-up, it's not going to be as specific as it was written. It'll still help it, but it's it definitely... Yeah, but you're going to wing it a little. Yeah. I will tell you, of the many things that I admire about stand-up comedy and they're legion for me, I regularly marvel at your capacity and memorize an hour of material. I can't believe that you can do it like without missing a beat and catching all your segues and remembering all the little minutia bits that are embedded in one bit. And I mean, that alone feels so hard to me. To have <laughs> yeah. No notes, no yeah. teleprompter. Was that always like a natural ability you had to, to memorize? Yeah, I mean, but it's, you know, when I'm doing acting work, I don't remember it as much as when I am. It is a weird thing. It's kind of a very strange thing I don't really understand. What I can't understand is there are some comedians like Seinfeld, you could tell, ask him about a joke from 30 years ago and he knows the joke. He's so specific and structured and it's still in his head. When I go and do another thing and I'm moving on, that old stuff. You lose it. I lose it. I'll have to ask my wife, like, what? Someone said something about a joke I had about a, a poodle. And she'll be like, and she will remember it more than I will because my head is now filled with this new stuff. It is a weird thing. It's a weird. It is. A, yeah. I don't know if it's your subconscious is letting it go. So it doesn't influence you or you just have to kind of, or if it's just literally a computer that's running out of memory <laughs> and you can only put so much in it. I can't believe that people can remember this act plus the other acts that they've done. It's impressive. It's impressive to watch. And just watching somebody lock into their own muscle memory on material in a seamless way that doesn't make us feel anxious in the crowd. Like, oh, he can't find it. He can't find it. (laughs) It's meandering. (laughs) That's so like anxiety producing. And so just to have this real confident delivery on stage for an hour. It's just a really like a monument to me. 
it doesn't get as much applause as it should. Just the simple fact of being able to deliver for that long. But I'm curious. I mean, you're in film, you're in writer, you're podcasting. There's so much that you do. Do you, I mean, I don't even know if this is a fair question because it's kind of apples to oranges, but of all the different verticals that you operate in, do you have one that you love the most? That when you're in it, the the whole process, the whole thing is just like, this is when the wind is at my back. This is when I, this is what I love the most. I think it's stand up. That almost goes without saying, like, like that's just me. So to even call that like one of the things is kind of not fair. It's like, it's so good. It's so great. It, the res- you get the response, you get the physical, the mental, the applause, the the scariness. Like it, all of it is so raw and potent. Of the other stuff that I do, I think it's the writing of the books. You know, I I know comedian friends that have written a book and they're like, I'll never do that again. And I just came out. My third one just came out. And I'm already like moving into what's going to be next. I love that. Once I learned what that process was, and a lot of it did come from, you know, the live from here experience. And and I was always more of a writer's comedian. I really do like that process. And I have this morning radio show, which has messed up that process <laughs> because I got into such a good routine of, getting my coffee, coming in before the day starts, go to work. And now I have this show that has eaten up that space. And it's because it's it's made it difficult to kind of keep that routine. But that's just in my head. The 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 process of it though, like I really, really enjoy that. It's isolating. Like I don't know if I could do it without being a stand-up because at least I get to go up and connect with people. If you're just purely a writer and, you know, I've had my eyes open on other writers and seeing how they live and what they do. And it's not much other than writing. You have to be in that shop all the time. It's true. It's true. I'm a writer. I've written a lot of books, but I, I speak and I do like live events too. And so during the pandemic, when those were all shuttered, obviously, and all I had was my little laptop in my little house and these four walls and no human people, I vowed I would never, ever again complain about travel, about hotels, <laughs> about any of it, because I I did not realize how much I needed that competing rhythm of a live room and just human bodies. Why? What, what, what was happening to you? I was just losing my skill that I had honed at that point to read my audience and feel these are the points that we have a lot of momentum together on. These are the ideas. These are the conversations. This is what's resonant. This isn't. And the live rooms gave me that almost unconsciously. I just absorbed it. And so I could come back to the little quiet room, the writing room. And I felt like I was a more competent writer, but I was just alone in my, my little brain without any feedback. And I found it really hard. Yeah. I could see people going a little crazy because it's, I mean, it's a level of isolation I really didn't understand. Like you re- you have to isolate yourself from the people in your house. Totally. Like you have to really, you don't have to do it all day. And there's this great book called, I think it's Daily Rituals. And it's about mostly writers, how they worked. And 
everybody had built in, okay, now I go deal with the humans. You know, like Stephen King says, don't like share it with anybody, like keep it, don't share it. Because one of the biggest hurdles that writers have, as you know, is your own head saying, is this good enough? I, and you start tearing it down and stop yourself from working be, with your critical mind. So if that's true, then why am I bringing in anybody, another critical mind, when it's not really, I haven't gone the full length yet? Completely. That's my process too. I yeah. deliver a book baked. It's done. It's cooling on the cooling rack. And because <laughs> right. yeah. I, I, my own neuroses is enough to stunt the process. And so, and then also there's this, what a first draft does for me, it just gives me the possibility of putting words on a page that I know I'm not going to keep it in this version or in this form or in this particular iteration. But if I can get the words down, and out of my head, I can manipulate them later. But with an editorial eye too soon saying, are you really going to include that? I, I, that takes me completely out yeah. of the, like, I think, truth-telling space. Mm-hmm. In fact, I started a book just recently. I'm writing it right now. And it is in a Word document with a handful of people that my some of my creative partners that we were just simply workshopping large sweeping ideas on it. So we, anyway, they have access to my um, Word doc. And I'm like, I got to change this. So yeah. they'll be like, oh, I, I popped in last night to see what you've written. I'm like, oh, no, no, this is not acceptable. No, I, that's a nightmare. I need to be in a cave. Yeah, yeah. I need to be in a, in a hidden cave while I'm <laughs> yeah, doing this Yeah, that's terrible. That's why, yeah, that's why whenever I hear that someone wrote something with somebody else, I, you're like, well, they didn't write it at all. That, that other person that we're not familiar with. Right? That's right. That's right. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age your personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Can't not let you go without talking a little bit about baking and bread and cooking. I also love your obsession with just learning. So you're going to read all the damn books and you're going to do all the things and you're going to put them into practice. And so what is that like for you? Because it's completely different. I mean, you're still being a funny, creative person, but it's you're in a kitchen. So... 
what has that been like? And how did that come about? And was it, were you driving that train or did somebody else say, Hey, you have something here? I always cooked, but I never, I never baked because I, I felt like baking was, I was always told it's a, it's precision and it's science and I'm sloppy and yeah, more visceral. And I was like, well, I can't really bake. But then a friend of mine taught me about sourdough starter and how real bread is made. And when I started doing that, I realized, well, this is baking, but there is more feel to it. This isn't making macrons. This is like, there's room here. This is closer to cooking, I think, than baking in a way. And I just got really obsessed with it. I got really into it. I couldn't believe that what a difference real bread was from all this bread that I was trying to feed my family that I thought was healthy, but was just filled with all this extra ingredients. And then I started thinking, well, this doesn't make any sense that our generation now is told that we can't eat bread. It's like every for centuries it was okay. And now all of a sudden it's this evil. I realized flour, water, salt, and yeast is real bread. And this other stuff is not. And that's why people have problems with it. That's right. So I love that. And then and it really started to fold into the writing schedule. Like when you're home, like it's a do a loaf of bread is sure. three days from beginning to end. And if I'm home and I'm writing and I'm in this healthy kind of fun writing space, the bread is the thing that gets you up away from your desk. And then you go tend to that. Then you come back and you just do it. So it really just became it just, I mean, I, it's been years now. And I'm just this morning before I spoke to you, I was feeding the starter for later because I started it yesterday. And then I also have this poolish, which is, it's kind of like an activated yeast dough flour concoction. I started the other day, yesterday to make baguettes later on today. So before, as I, I, I just, it's, it is bizarre. Like I'll walk into the kitchen and I feed the starter and I make my coffee and then I see where, what's the time map for all right, I got to go do another podcast after this one. And then when I come back, when will I get the, when will I shape the baguettes? When will I get them in the <laughs> oven? Like, how does it, is there room in the day to fit that in? And then there's like this mindless, there's definitely, ha there has to be this emotional part to it. For sure. My kids are at school now. So I come back to the house since like yesterday, I found myself making a ciambella, which is this Italian lemon kind of pastry cake. So there's definitely something at play where I just need to have focus other than what else is going on in your life. Totally. And what, literally, what is more nurturing and nourishing than homemade sourdough bread? Nothing. Yeah, like nothing. that is, to me, the, the, the picture of like just nurture. And it's still creative. It's very creative. Like you're still like scratching the itch that you've always had, but just in a, new, in a different genre and everybody gets to enjoy it. I mean, you've got to be the hero of the home. Yeah. You must be. I mean, that's I, uh, everything you do over here, of course, but for your bread. Yeah. No, there's a yes. quiet, there's a quiet joy I have knowing like as, as you're baking it over the hour and you're opening the oven and take doing this step, you know, taking the lid off of the Dutch oven and then letting just know it just when you hit that point where the house is now filled with that smell, <laughs> that's like, there's like a quiet, like I know I'm doing a, a good, I may not be 
giving you great advice. Maybe That's I've right. been a little short. Maybe who knows? Sure. But at, at least I added to this. <laughs> uh, I just couldn't agree more. That's the yeah. exact reason I love the kitchen. Yeah, um, it great. covers a multitude of sins. What's your favorite thing to cook? I'm not a good baker. And so this is why I think why I'm fascinated with your journey into sourdough. But I I really love, if I had to pick a just a particular cuisine, I'm, I always lean sort of Southeast Asian. I love Thai. I like sweet and spicy. Yeah. Really oh, spicy. Yeah. So those are the foods that I always reach for. Like when I, when you look at my refrigerator, it's all the, it's all that. That's a, that's what it is. But I'm also Texan. So I can, I can be down with some Southern brisket burgers. I, I have no shame yeah. at all <laughs> yeah. around some of that, like, just very the red meat sort of consumption. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just enjoy That's cooking. Good. It is yeah, interesting, like the it. Thai thing, like that your your kitchen is that. Like I I I'm not that. It's mostly Italian. And so it's like whenever I want to venture into that, it's like I need everything. <laughs> like because it's so <laughs> far yeah because it's so far and it's like i, I, I rice wine vinegar and I'm, i need and, oyster you know, sauce <laughs> yeah. yes exactly Are, do you make your own pasta no okay that might I be don't. your next frontier it's 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 the cousin i know it's the cousin to homemade healthy bread yeah it really is it's i've read some things by some you know i read all these books and like it, the difference between the dry pasta and the homemade, like, isn't that great? It's not great enough for how much work it is. But it's, it's true. But every time I see on Instagram somebody making pasta, I'm like, how can I not be doing this? That's how I feel too. I feel jealous of the the homemade pasta people, but I'm like, but do I want to do that? That feels hard. <laughs> yeah. And I have so I have five kids. Now they don't all live here. They're grown and growing. Yeah, but. I have a lot of mouths to feed. I, I don't think I can make that much pasta. There isn't enough pasta <laughs> right. to feed all these boys. So last, I just would love to hear what you're working on and what's coming up for you. And and secondarily, what you would love to do, what you'd like to see like in your next three or four or five years, back to film, whatever. Like you've got, you have a lot of, you have a lot of tools in your toolkit. So what's going on for you now? What would you love to have be going on soon? Right now, it's mostly about the act. I'm going to do my next special probably the beginning of next year. And I'm in good shape, but I want it to be great. So it's like I'm writing. And I, I haven't been writing as much for other... Like I'll write essays and tr try and get them in the New Yorker. And I'll be working on the next book. And I am haven't really been aggressively going after that other stuff. And I, I think it's because I'm putting that writing muscle purely on the act. So I'm cutting myself some slack that I'm not, you know, that I, if I am writing aggressively after the act, then it's okay that I'm not writing that other stuff. And right now I am. So, but I do have two ideas for the next book that I'm noodling with of what that's going to be, you know, I feel like I don't want to be too repetitive. Like, could I go complete, but going completely in a different direction is kind of scary. And I don't know if people would want that from me. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I'm not really too sure. I've got before the strike, I have something in development at one of the networks. Yeah. The thing that's been kind of intriguing to me 
the one thing that I haven't done is I haven't made a film. And I know some people at different levels who've made films, you know, like people who... You mean write it, produce it, do the whole... Yeah. 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 Sure. So I feel like there's something percolating with that where I love being in control. I'm in control of my books. I'm in control of my act. I'm in control of my podcasts. It's like, then you go into this acting world and I'm totally at other people's whims. It's like, will they hire me? Will they say yes to this idea? Will they approve of the script? And it's like, if I could write my own film and go and shoot it, it's like I'm bringing that control back to that part. And it's really, really intriguing to me. I mean, you have all the raw materials of doing that as a writer, as an actor. You've got the experiential chops to back that up. And probably also the partners. You have your friends with so many interesting creatives and writers and performers. And you have a deep well to pull from. That's super exciting. Yeah. A lot of people I could bother. Totally. (laughs) Absolutely. Call in every favor. Yeah. Like use threats and bribery. I'm above none of it. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) None of it. Okay, awesome. I've just loved talking to you. Thank you so much for letting us kind of peek behind the curtain of your process and your work and yeah, your just a, such an amazing career, like truly, truly special. This is the final question. I ask everybody this actually, every guest in every series gets this. I borrowed this from somebody else, but and you can answer this however you want, by the way. You could answer it in an absurd way or in an earnest way. It, I, we don't care. The question is, what is saving your life right now? What is saving my life right now? Perspective. It's perspective. There's a, there's a perspective that you get at a certain stage in life that right now there's lots of change and there's lots of external forces and internal stuff. There's, there's a lot going on. But I feel like I've played this game and have a, a calmness and a perspective that is really, really valuable. Oh, God. Bottle it. Yeah. Bottle it and sell it. <laughs> yeah. I That's think... this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's something that really almost nothing but time and age can give us. Yeah. Really. Right. Just exactly. living long enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see it like whenever I see people talk, it's a common, we all are playing by the same blueprint. And when people are around my age, you get, they all say the same thing. They all, it's like, so I've just entered that realm. Yeah. 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 I'm, I am too. And yeah. I love it. I love it. And I have enough young adults in my actual family who are prepared to like, you know, let me know that the world is burning down around us every other day. So they'll keep, they'll keep me in check <laughs> with my perspective. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Last. Can you just like tell my listeners where to find you and follow you and see your work and get your books? What's the best Tom one-stop shop? I'd go to TomPapa.com. Everything's there. The link to the books, the podcasts, everything, and all social media. Okay, perfect. Thanks again for being on today. This was great. It's just delightful to talk to you. And I just can't wait for you to write your film. 
so we yeah. can all go see it. That'd we'll look nice. forward to that. It's been spoken into the universe, <laughs> so let it be. Okay. Let it be. Okay. I'll see you Thank at the you. premiere. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, you guys, wasn't he enjoyable? And by the way, if ever you want to watch one of the podcasts, we put all, we video all these interviews and they're over on my YouTube channel. Sometimes it's just really fun to watch a guest talk and to see us sort of interact in that way, sort of our faces and our body language. Of course, that's how I experience every interview. So that's my preferred mechanism. If ever you just want to pop it open and watch the interview that's over there. Anyway, as mentioned, Tom has all his stuff over his website. So if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will have everything that you need for this episode, for Tom's socials, his books, everything. If you'd like more of him and why wouldn't you? And so I hope you're enjoying this, the funny series like I am. What I like about it, it's not just clowning around. Like we're not just doing bits or we're not just being funny. I love talking to funny people as people because they're just people. And so getting to learn about their lives a little bit and their processes and how they got into comedy and who made them laugh first, that to me is where it's really interesting. And uh, we get to peek behind the curtain of this genre of folks. And so more to come. You guys, if you've missed any of the series, I can't recommend you subscribing to the show enough. Subscribe if you haven't already. It'll just show up for you. You won't even have to search it out. And you can see any of the episodes that you missed. So you guys, on behalf of Amanda and I and Laura and her team, we surely, surely love you and love bringing this show to you. And we'll see you next week. Bye.